0: Section 9 of History of a Literary Radical This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Butros. History of a Literary Radical by Randolph Silliman Bourne The Puritan's Will to Power To the modern young person who tries to live well there is no type so devastating and harassing as the Puritan. We cannot get away from him. In his sight we always live. We finish with justifying our new paganism against him, but we never quite lose consciousness of his presence. Even Theodore Dreiser, who has always revolted from the Puritan clutch, finds it necessary now and then to tilt a lance against him if there were no puritans we should have to invent them and if the pagan mr dreiser has to keep on through life fighting puritans how much more intrigued must we be who are only reformed puritans and feel old dangers stirring at every aggressive gesture of righteousness for the puritan is the most stable and persistent of types it is scarcely a question of a puritanical age and a pagan age it is only a question of more puritans or less puritans even the most emancipated generation will find that it has only broken its puritanism up into compartments and balances sexual freedom, or better, perhaps, a pious belief in sexual freedom with a cult of efficiency and personal integrity, which is far more coercive than the most sumptuary of laws. Young people who have given up all thought of being good anxiously celebrate a cult of making good, and a superstition like eugenics, threatens to terrorize the new intelligentsia. Every new generation, in fact, contrives to find some new way of being puritanical. Every new generation finds some new way of sacrifice. Every new triumphant assertion of life is counterbalanced by some new denial. In Europe, this most proud and lusty young generation goes to its million-headed slaughter and in America the social consciousness arises to bewilder and deflect the esor towards life. Just when conventions seemed to be on the run, and youth seemed to be facing a sane and candid attitude towards sex, we find idealistic girls and men coming out of the colleges to tell us of our social responsibility to the race this means not only that our daily living is to be dampened by the haunting thought of misery that we cannot personally prevent but that our thirst towards love experience is to be discouraged and turned aside into a concern for racial perfection that is we are subtly persuaded against merely growing widely and loving intensely we become vague and mystified means toward nebulous and unreal ends this new puritanism will not let us be ends in ourselves or let personality be the chief value in life it will almost let us sometimes but it always pulls us up somewhere there is always a devil of inhibition to interpose before our clean and naive grasping of life you see my puritanism takes the form of a suspicion that there may be a personal devil lurking in the universe this is why the puritan always needs to be thoroughly explained and exposed we must keep him before our eyes recognize him as the real enemy no matter in what ideal disguise he lurks We must learn how he works, and what peculiar satisfactions he gets from his activity, for he must get satisfaction, or he would not be so prevalent. I accept the dogma that to explain anybody we have to do little more than discover just what contentment people are getting from what they do, or from what they are permitting to happen to them or even from what they are flinging their will into trying to prevent happening to them for if life is anything positive it is the sense of control in the puritan of course we have the paradox how he can get satisfaction from ruggedly and sternly subjecting himself and renouncing the world the flesh and the devil There is a popular superstition that the Puritan has an extra endowment of moral force, that he reverses the natural current of life, that he resists the drag of carnality down towards hell, that his energy is thrown contra-satisfaction, that this control is a real straddling of the nefarious way. But, of course, it is just this superstition that gives the Puritan his terrific prestige, in the light of the will to power dogma this superstition fades the puritan becomes just as much of a naturalistic phenomenon as the most carnal sinner instincts and impulses in the puritan are not miraculously cancelled but have their full play The primitive currents of life are not blocked and turned back on their sources, but turned into powerful and usually devastating channels. The Puritan is just as much of a natural man as you or I. But we still have to explain how this lustful, headstrong creature called man, spilling with greed, could so unabatedly throughout the ages give up the primitive satisfaction of sex and food and drink and gregariousness and act the ascetic and the glumly censorious? How could an animal whose business was to feel powerful get power from being in subjection and deprivation?" Well, the Puritan gets his sense of power from a very cunningly organized satisfaction of two of his strongest impulses, the self-conscious personal impulses of being regarded and being neglected. The Puritan is no thwarted and depleted person. On the contrary, he is rather a complete person getting almost the maximum of satisfaction out of these two apparently contradictory sentiments the self-regarding and self-abasing the pure autocrat would feed himself wholly on the first the pure slave would be only a human embodiment of the second but the purer puritan manages to make the most powerful amalgam of both What we may call the Puritan process starts with the satisfaction of the impulse for self-abasement, an impulse as primitive as any, for in the long struggle for survival it was often just as necessary for life to cower as it was to fight. It is only the Puritan's prestige that has attached moral value to self-sacrifice for there is nothing intrinsic in it that makes it any more praiseworthy than lust but its pragmatic value is immense when the puritan announces himself as the least worthy of men he not only predisposes in his favor the naturally slavish people around him but he neutralizes the aggressive and self-regarding who would otherwise be moved to suppress him he renounces, he puts on meekness, he sternly regiments himself, he makes himself unhappy in ways that are just not quite severe enough to excite pity, and yet run no risk of arousing any envy. If the Puritan does all this unconsciously, the effect is yet the same as if he were deliberately plotting. To give his impulses of self-abasement full play— he must, of course, exercise a certain degree of control. This control, however, gives him little of that sense of power that makes for happiness. Puritan moralists have always tried to make us believe in this virtue of self-control. They forget to point out, however, that it does not become a virtue until it has become idealized control over self gives us little sense of control it is the dreariest of all satisfactions of the will to power not until we become proud of our self-control do we get satisfaction the puritan only begins to reap his satisfaction when the self-regarding impulse comes into play having given his self-abasing impulse free rein he is now in a position to exploit his self-regard he has made himself right with the weak and slavish he has fortified himself with their alliance he now satisfies his self-regard by becoming proud of his humility and enjoining it on others if it were self-control alone that made the puritan he would not be as powerful as he is indeed he would be no more than the mild ascetic who is all abnegation because his self-regarding mechanism is weak but in the puritan both impulses are strong it is control over others that yields him his satisfactions of power he may stamp out his sex desire but his impulse to shatter ideas that he does not like will flourish wild and wanton to the true puritan the beauty of unselfishness lies in his being able to enforce it on others he loves virtue not so much for its own sake as for its being an instrument of his terrorism The true Puritan is at once the most unselfish and the most self-righteous of men. There is nothing he will not do for you, give up for you, suffer for you. But at the same time there is no cranny of your world that he will not illuminate with the virtue of this doing of his. His real satisfaction comes not from his action of benevolence, but from the moral of the tale. He need not boast about his renunciation or his altruism, but in any true Puritan atmosphere that pride will be prevalent. Indeed, it is the oxygen of that atmosphere. Wherever you come across that combination of selfless devotion with self-righteousness, you have the essence of the Puritan should you come across the one without the other you would find not the puritan but the saint the puritan then gets the satisfaction of his will to power through the turning of his self-abasement into purposes of self-regard renunciation is the raw material for his positive sense of power The Puritan gets his satisfaction exactly where the most carnal of natural men gets his, out of the stimulation of his pride. And in a world where renunciation has to happen to us whether we want it or not, the Puritan is in the most impressive strategic position. In economy of energy, he has it all over the head that is bloody but unbowed. For the Puritan is so efficient morally that he can bow his head, and yet exact control, both out of the bowing and out of the prestige which his bowing gives him, as well as out of the bowing which he can enforce on others. The true Puritan must become an evangelist. It is not enough to renounce the stimulus to satisfaction, which is technically known as a temptation. The renouncing must be made into an ideal. The ideal must be codified, promulgated, and, in the last analysis, enforced. In the compelling of others to abstain, you have the final glut of puritanical power. For in getting other people to renounce a thing, you thereby get renewed justification for your own renouncing and so the Puritan may go on inexhaustibly rolling up his satisfactions, one impulse reinforcing the other. The simultaneous play of these two apparently inconsistent personal impulses makes the Puritan type one of the stablest in society. While the rest of us are longing for power, the Puritan is enjoying his and because the Puritan is so well integrated, he almost always rules. The person whose satisfactions of control are more various and more refined is on the defensive against him. The Puritan gets his sense of power not in the harmless way of the artist, or the philosopher, or the lover, or the scientist, but in a crude assault on that most vulnerable part of other people's souls, their moral sense. He is far more dangerous to those he converts than to those he intimidates, for he first scares them into abandoning the rich and sensuous and expressive impulses in life, and then teaches them to be proud of having done so we all have the potentiality of the Puritan within us. I remember suffering agonies at the age of ten, because my aunt used to bring me candy that had been wickedly purchased on the Sabbath day. I forget whether I ate it or not, but that fact is irrelevant. What counted was the guilt with which the whole universe seemed to be stained." I need no other evidence of the irrational nature of morality than this fact that children can be such dogged little Puritans, can be, at the age of ten, so sternly and intuitively righteous. The Puritan is a case of arrested development. Most of us do grow beyond him, and find subtler ways of satisfying our desire for power, And we do it because we never can quite take that step from self-abasement to self-regard. We never can quite become proud of our humility. Renunciation remains an actual going without, sacrifice a real thwarting. If we value an experience and deliberately surrender it, we are too naive to pretend that there are compensations. There is a loss we are left with a vacuum. There is only depression and loss of control. Our self-regard is not quite elemental enough to get stimulation from wielding virtue over others. I never feel so degraded as when I have renounced. I had rather beat my head rhythmically and endlessly against an unyielding wall, for the pagan often breaks miraculously through the wall, but the Puritan at his best can only strut outside. Most of us, therefore, after we have had our Puritan fling, sown our Puritan wild oats, as it were, grow up into devout and progressing pagans, cultivating the warmth of the sun, the deliciousness of love experience, the high moods of art. The Puritans remain around us, a danger and a threat. But they have value to us in keeping us acutely self-conscious of our faith. They wet our ardor. Perhaps no one can be really a good appreciating pagan who has not once been a bad Puritan. End of Section 9